Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm with my co-host, Ryan. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, everyone. (laughs) So you said, I said, what are we going to chat about? Or you asked what we were going to chat about. And I said, I've got no idea. And you said, well, I'll come up with something. Um, And you did. You've kind of got three. Yeah. So I, I I pitched three topics of conversation. The first is about... Uh, is in response to this cancel culture stuff that's going on in, in Hollywood, um, which is about forgiveness and the role of kind of tolerance and forgiveness in being a parent. Because it's been said that that mothers have an unlimited tolerance for what their sh- children do, and I'm I'm wondering about a, a mother's perspective on that and whether or not it's it's helpful or unhelpful. The third topic. <laughs> was about motherhood. Mother's Day has just passed. And I have a couple of friends who uh, lost kids uh, before they were born. And they have a lot of emotions about that time. And they're told quite frequently that they're not mothers. And I I wanted to discuss that with you as well. I thought that was an interesting topic of conversation. I wish I could remember the second topic of conversation. It's about the movie, the movie you watched. No, that was, the, that was the, the third one. That was the third one. Yeah, so the second was... one was the miscarriage and whether you're a proper mother. And then the third one was was the movie. Oh, no, the, I remember the second one. Uh, the second one was a, a question from someone who, who doesn't want kids to someone who's had kids. When you decided that you were going to bring people into the world, you know, which is great, what was your kind of vision of what their life would be like? What, what was the purpose for their being alive, if you know what I mean. So those are the three questions. One, two, three. Look, and I should say to everybody, we recorded this, or we started recording this yesterday, and then my laptop died, as in completely died, and I had to go buy a new one. So we're starting recording this again. So I'm kind of, I, and I hate doing that because I'm always a bit worried in case I'm repeating myself without realising, do you know what I mean? So... In answer to your first question about Mm -hmm. whether, I mean, I suppose it's whether motherhood blinds you to what you would be a moral stand against in other circumstances were that person not your child. Yes. And and is it necessary to blind you? You know, because I've heard it said, for instance, that no one can love a person like their mother loves them, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, I think very useful. For a six-year-old, who are horrible people, really, or awful people, they, they are inherently selfish and little germ factories, right? So you need a vast forgiveness to put up with that. Yeah. When they're, say, 26 and they do something that is selfish and disease-spreading, to, to stick with the metaphor, you know, is that forgiveness still inherent and helpful? It's a hard one. I remember... When Kira was very little, she was about three, and we were at some party or other, and she went skipping off with a little friend, and I turned to one of my friends, 
and said, oh, my God, look at them, aren't they just gorgeous? You just want to squeeze them and hug them. And she said, Karen, they do this. They make you fall in love with them so you don't kill them when they're teenagers. <laughs> and that's, I suppose, is what the cuteness is all about because kids are selfish and demanding and rude and every other thing you can put up with. And then they do these cute things that make you go, oh, so you don't kill them, basically. And it becomes a habit, I suppose. So before I had you, I was a swimming teacher from being in my early teens all the way through. It was always my fallback job, go and do swimming teaching. And I was teaching at this one particular pool one time. And I was in my late 20s. It was just before I had you two. And I'd been teaching these little kids how to dive. And it was their first diving lesson, right? So you just arms over your ears and you just, you know, bend over and plop in. They don't go anywhere. And the the pool at this point was 1.8 meters deep, right? And these are little kids. They're eight, nine-year-olds. And so anyway, off they plopped. And I started the next lesson. And the head coach came over to me and he turned me so that his back was to the grandstand and I was facing the grandstand. And he said, before I say anything, I need you to promise me that whatever I say, you're just going to look really sad and really upset. Do you promise me? And I said, "Uh, yeah, okay." And he said, "Okay." One of the mothers has complained that her son hit his head on the bottom and she now has to take him to hospital because he's got a suspected concussion. I went to start to talk and he's like, no, 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 just look really sorry and sad. I went, okay. And he said, I know she's talking rubbish, but I've got to make it look like I'm giving you a good telling off and you look really contrite because then she won't take it any further. And you see that kind of behavior anywhere where parents are involved with their kids' sports, mainly mothers, but fathers can get a bit like that, particularly with something like soccer or rugby or footy, you know. But the mothers, I, I got firsthand experience. And because I was of the age where I was thinking about having kids, I'm watching all these mothers going, I don't want to turn into that. I don't want to be so blinded by what my child tells me, that it changes reality. So my default go-to when something happened, as you were all growing up, which I felt really mean about, was not to believe you. (laughs) I'd really go, okay, so tell me actually what happened. Don't tell me your version of it. Tell me what happened. And I dig until I got the truth. Sometimes you weren't to blame, but half the time you were at least partly to blame. but And I did, I can't say that I 100% didn't get taken in by my children because I know for a fact I got taken in by all of you at least once. Mm, at least once, yeah. <laughs> at um, least for, once. The, for the benefit of the listener, because you covered it yesterday when we were, we were discussing this in the first take, how did you know that the child hadn't concussed themselves on the pool? Because you just you, you really skimmed that part in this telling of the story. Just like, obviously, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the kid was only little. He wasn't even up to my shoulder. The pool was 1.8 metres deep. 
And they were at that level of learn to swim where when they plopped into the water, their hands and feet went in at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of went <laughs> down like this, you know, and they stayed within about this much of the surface, maximum. There yeah, was no way. <laughs> and, and you can see when a kid goes down to the bottom, you can see them scrabbling along the bottom like this. Nah, there was none of that. Though I, I doubt he went maybe more than half a metre underwater. They're just no. And I was watching them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's, just, that's just, just wanted to clarify. Because <laughs> without context, uh, it was, he just dismissed it. He's like, it, fine. It was fine. Character building. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I came in from the pool one day, this was only a few years ago. It was up on the Gold Coast, and I dived into the pool and oh. scraped my nose. I'm pretty sure I broke it in retrospect because it's been curved ever since. Yeah. And I came out, and there was blood everywhere. And uh, I was very pleased with myself. But there was no discussion of how, whether or not I'd concussed myself. No one took me to the hospital. They were just like, put some betadine on it and don't go in the pool again. You loser. You <laughs> uncoordinated git. More in the lines of how old are you and how long have you been swimming? If you're dumb enough to do that, it's not my problem. I think I was 20, 22, 23 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was fair. It was fair. <laughs> and there is a real culture of that. There is a there real is. culture of that. Um, there is. And it is necessary for the survival of our species that we... As mothers, we see the best in our children, but there does come a time where you've got to apply, I don't know, I'm getting all moralistic here. You've got to say, would I accept this in somebody else? And if the answer is no, then, but I'm like that. I'm very black and white in that regard. I I have a follow-up question that I think you might enjoy, which is, Speaking in terms of what we can tell from prehistoric human behavior, right? The concept of the atomic family, which is just the mother and the father and the kids, is nothing that happened no. in nature. Generally, we worked as, as huge familial units of 40 or 50 or 60, right? Do you think that this instinct that we see now of the, the terrible mother, and I have a lot of teacher friends, by the way, a lot of my friends are teachers, and they, the stories that they tell me are nothing short of, of horrific sometimes because nothing is ever the child's fault anymore. Everything's the teacher's fault, you know, which is better than, I think, you know, caning. <laughs> but I think we've got a little bit too far in the opposite direction. But my question is, is that instinct, that, that kind of mother bear protective instinct, is it only so big? Because there's the real feeling that you and only you are looking after the kids because quite often the fathers, especially like for instance in our case, dad's off work. He's not there. Do you think that affects it at all? I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good question because even when I was growing up, even though we'd moved away from all the family, everybody still took part in raising that child. So if somebody else told you off, you deserved that telling off most of the time because you'd done something wrong, you know. I remember 
being told off by the policeman for doing something stupid. You know, the copper would tell you off. You get down off that wall before you fall down. You know, <laughs> just things like that. Or kids being dragged, boys in particular, being dragged home by their ear by the police officer because they'd been caught doing something dumb. So there was a real community feel about the whole thing. So that no matter where you went somebody else would be looking out for you. So we would disappear off into the distance because no matter where you were, there were people looking out for you. It was completely different. Whereas now it is mainly on the sole parent that's with that child at that time because you can't tell somebody else's child off. There was a couple of times where one or the other of you brought a friend home and I told said friend off for doing something in my house. And I used to be fair, I used to stand the kids at the back door and I'd go, these are my rules. My house, my rules. If you don't like it and you break the rules, you go home, you'll get told off. And a lot of kids thought that was unfair and dobbed on me to their parents. And was like, well, I'm sorry, but they're in my care. And unless I can make sure I care for them, I can't have them here. I'm really sorry. But I'd expect the same thing if you went to somebody else's house, that they would look after you like you were their own child and not let you do stuff that they wouldn't let their child do, you know, because for whatever reason. So, yeah, I wonder if it does put so much pressure on that you feel this need to overprotect because there is nobody else out there taking care of your kids. That was my first kind of instinct. I, I went to visit a few friends in, in New South Wales recently for context, listeners. And, and one of the things that happened while we were up there is that we were exposed to COVID, which meant that what was a weekend trip turned into essentially a, a two-week trip because of various things. And the friends that we stayed with who had COVID have a very small baby. Uh, his name is Elliot. He's, he's round. And Joe and I are both educators especially for very young kids. We are used to this. We, we teach kids on the regular and not our own kids. And more than that, like I have a lot of experiences, as, as you know, you'll know, mom is both changing nappies and, and feeding small kids and keeping them entertained. And I was shocked coming into a family of, of, of just the three of them, of how that wasn't a shared responsibility. We were in their home and, and we were guests, which is, you know, fair. But also we were in their home for a solid two weeks. And so I would have expected, I offered repeatedly, do you want me to feed the baby? Would you like me to change the baby? Do you want me to keep the baby occupied for the next four hours so you can go and have a sleep? Xanthi, have a nap. Please sleep. He's ill. He's up all night and yelling. And we can all hear him. Because that that was my kind of instinct. And I think with four kids, you you do get that regardless of how atomic your family is the more siblings you have the more that responsibility is shared I found that curious as someone who, who doesn't have kids again I would have expected the village to raise the child mm. um, but there is a feeling of, of protectiveness and when you're the only person who can look after your kids you know how far does that go to, to not trusting other people to raise your kids like what was your experience as a mother when we were talking to, to random strangers. <laughs> was there an overriding fear uh, when, when we were out and about or trying to, to go off on adventures and cause trouble? Because we did. We caused a lot of trouble. And we were fascinated by people that probably shouldn't have fascinated us. What was your kind of experience of that? I think I was quite lucky because 
how I'd been brought up, or when I grew up, we lived on the edge of the moors in England. And I used to go off riding my horse and swear to God, your grandparents wouldn't see me. I'd leave the house at seven o'clock in the morning. I'd make myself some usually brown sauce sandwiches, HP sauce on bread, make some brown sauce sandwiches, and they wouldn't see me till the sun was setting. And they had no idea where I was. I was just off on the horse somewhere, somewhere on the moors. And I used to fall off that horse every day. He threw me off every day and half the time he'd nick off and I'd have to go and find him somewhere. So I've been walking miles before I found my horse. But from their point of view, I mean, this was in the 70s, the early 70s. That was what you did with your kids. You just let them go out and do stuff and some of the farmer or whatever would help them out. And I suppose... I still had a little bit of that in my mind, you know, just trusting. I had to trust, one, that you could, you were responsible enough to take care of yourself and your siblings, which sounds really naive, but at some, you have to do it. You actually have to do it. And that's the hardest thing is allow your kids to step out into the world and be responsible for themselves because until you do, They're not going to learn anything, but you don't want them to learn how to do it because they're too dumb to do it. (laughs) So you spend the whole time on nervous tenterhooks in case anything happens. But in my mind, I had to do it because I wasn't doing my job as a parent if I didn't. I couldn't wrap you in cotton wool. You had to do stuff. And your dad still accused me of wrapping you in cotton wool. Yep. <laughs> I've heard, in fairness, I've heard the stories he tells of his childhood when he went off on his own without warning, not for a single day, but for several days at a time. So he's got a different rule of thumb, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was 14 when he started doing that. He'd go away rock climbing for the weekend, straight after school on Friday and wouldn't get back till sometimes Monday morning and go straight to school. And, yeah, he just said, I'm with the Rock Climbing Club. That was it. It's a hard one. It's actually really difficult because there is that fine line to tread. Where's the responsibility and where do I, where does my responsibility end and where do you start taking care of yourself? It's a really difficult one to to come about. But let's go on to this. What was the one you had about, oh, that proper mother's thing? You're not a proper mother because you haven't actually... That's really nasty. It is, isn't it? It is. I I think it's connected to the last question because as we finished, we were coming off the protective kind of mother bear instinct, which is it's quite problematic in a lot of ways, not just for society as a whole, but for the individual mother. But it's also very elitist. Uh, One of the things that I notice as my friends start having kids is um, the difference between how you treat a father and how you treat a mother. Regardless of how involved the father is now, there is still an expectation of generations past that dads aren't qualified to look after kids. They're not capable of doing it in the same way. And in fairness, men lack certain abilities to feed children. Can't do anything about that, especially if the child is under like 18 months old. The the child will automatically prefer the person who is attached to food. Can't do anything about that. But there is that real feeling of, of elitism there, that the mother is the only one qualified. She's an expert. She has a little badge that says mother, and all of the rest of the world gets a tiny little piece of the badge that says child. And I, I think that extends to this, the second question. 
you're not a real mother. Because I can't think of anywhere else that that perspective would come from other than a feeling of elitism. I, I, I can't think of anywhere else. Then again, the idea is, is quite alien to me. I, I, don't, I don't really understand it. A few of my friends who are in their 40s and 50s now have only ever had you know, dogs and cats and, and, and whatnot, which you know isn't exactly the same as parenthood, but there's still a feeling of, of looking after them. And quite a few of them have you know, dedicated their lives to, for instance, animal rescuing, where they take very small, tiny baby animals and they raise them to be functional adult animals and from an outside perspective someone who hasn't and doesn't want children it's very similar i've heard uh being parenthood described as having a dog that gradually learns how to talk which is probably the most attractive pitch i've, I've heard for parenthood honestly it sounds pretty good to me uh, dogs <laughs> do not do anything on the level that kids do in terms of testing your boundaries <laughs> they just don't <laughs> ryan used to say He'd come home from school when he was 15 and he'd want an argument. He was 15, he was full of hormones and he'd want an argument and he'd say something really outrageous to me in order to have an argument and I'd invariably be in the kitchen cooking dinner because cooking dinner for four teenagers is a coil, as anybody knows. And he'd say something, he said, and you'd carry on calmly just making dinner and he said, I could see the cogs and you'd go, Eventually you go, yeah, I can understand that point of view. However, <laughs> <laughs> so you just take all the argument out of it. And all I did, I just wanted an argument. I just wanted a fight with somebody and you wouldn't like me. <laughs> so this, is, this is one of those things where I'm having a cogs turning over thinking kind of moment. I don't know whether it's elitist. I was talking to, what was it? Oh, no, a friend of mine put up a post about how the anti-abortionists in the US and they're repealing the abortion laws, you know, where you can only have an abortion if you're less than eight weeks or whatever it is, I can't remember. And she put up a post saying how wrong that was. And some guy commented on her post saying, I thought you were a child of God. <laughs> I had a lot to say about that. I'm actually talking to her. Um, she's going, we're going to have a, a discussion about that about because she lives in the midwest of the usa so she's kind of smack bang in the middle of it so it'd be really mm. interesting to get her perspective as a more liberal person living in the midwest but the point that i got quite gnarly about was as a man you have no right to say what a woman should and shouldn't do with her body because you have no understanding of what it's like for that woman, just as mum, vice versa. I cannot understand what you're going through. I haven't got the same hormones, the same body, nothing. So it's not, I'm not in a position to say what's right for you. And I really don't like the fact that all these middle-aged white men, for the most part, feel that it's right to dictate to something they've got no understanding of and can never experience, this is what you should do. Now, you can, you can give me your opinion. That's fine. But you've got no right to tell me. And this is, to me, it's that kind of scenario. It's actually that kind of situation. You cannot understand what it's like to be a parent unless you've been a parent. There are surrogates and substitutes and things that are very similar, but it is not 
quite the same. So it's not that it's necessarily elitist. You could view it that way. It's an experience that sets you apart. And it could be an experience such as sexual abuse or your parents dying when you were very little or something, um, you're moving to a different country, something that's that defines you as a person. But to say that because somebody didn't give birth to a child because they miscarried, they're not a mother. Yeah, no, that's no, that's nasty. (laughs) That's nasty because you got all the hormones there. You've got everything that starts changing your brain and changing everything that you've already had that flowing through your body. So that's just that's just nasty. That is just very dominating gaslighting. That's a very fun answer. And and I'd love to tell you why, Uh, because I have two follow up questions. The first of my two questions is when you were listing life changing events such as as parenthood would change you as a person, they were all trauma. I know. I could only think of traumatic ones. It's like, what, what else is a life-changing event? And like, the obvious ones are the traumatic ones. <laughs> you're not selling this for me. I've got to say it's In your face, I'm thinking, I know what he's thinking, and I cannot think of a life-changing event that's positive. <laughs> parenthood is traumatic. It is traumatic. Even when you're pregnant, the changes that happen, for some people... It's for some women, it's very nice. And, you know, they love being pregnant. Personally, I hated it. I hated the hormones. I hated the fact that I couldn't do stuff. I hated the fact that I couldn't sit without getting really bad back pains, stomach pains, every pain that you can poke a stick at. Well, I did not like it. And then when the baby's born, love it when you hear people say, oh, the baby's going to fit into my life. Mate, you're in for a shock. <laughs> That's not what happens. And <laughs> Not just because of the baby, but because the hormones on, on both parts, male and female, make you want to do things differently. It's not just a female thing. The man wants to do things differently because all of a sudden, as parents, you got this, this body that you're 100% responsible for and you're going to change your life to make that happy and mm. you know do whatever you can for it. So, yes, what was your second point? No, that was fun. That was a fun response to that. What's my second point? It was, it was completely overtaken by the first point because that was a great answer. And I, and I would like to, to just kind of say that, that obviously parenthood is traumatic. The hormonal changes alone are just as traumatic, I think, as, as going through puberty, which I'm sure we can all agree is God awful. <laughs> no one wants to go through that again. But giving birth, my goodness. I, you did it four times. But props to you. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I was very lucky because my stomach muscles have been amazing my whole life. Thank the Lord. So my pregnant, my actual labors were very, very short. I could not imagine doing labor <laughs> for like 17, 18, or Xanthi, 25 hours or whatever. Just no. No, thirty hours. In the thirty end. hours. Yeah. No, yeah. just no. Poor Zan. Yeah. Okay, this is a good answer. The Dang. second question that I, I remember, and then I've forgotten again immediately. Dang it. Uh, okay, the second question was: Motherhood is the hormonal part, the physiological changes, 
a more significant change than the actual, you know, cognitive having to take care of someone? Like, which changed you more, do you think? The answer is, I suspect, and it's fair if the answer is that early on, the physiological changes were obviously much more kind of drastic because you changed everything about how you lived your life. And then later on, when you're dealing with, for instance, teenagers, it has to become more kind of cognitive. I, I suspect that's the answer, but if that helps you. Kind of is and isn't. The, the physiological changes enable the cognitive changes to take place because you've gone from taking care of yourself, you know, we're all selfish creatures. We come through childhood and we stay pretty selfish. We might get trained in helping take care of other people and, you know, we have a partner and we take care of them. But essentially we take care of ourselves. We do, unless we're in a situation where it requires us to uh, be a carer for somebody. Then this baby comes along and you're not first anymore. And the physiological changes have to take place in order for those cognitive changes to happen because that baby's demanding, like you were saying, Xanthi, with with, uh, the baby because he's sick had COVID, he was up all night. All you want to do is go and have a sleep because Xanthi had COVID as well. So she just wanted to get rid of the baby and just go and have a sleep. That is what you do before you had the baby, but you can't. So all the hormones and everything's make you take care of that baby. You actually can't not take care of that baby. It's difficult to override it. So the two are actually mixed together. Yep. Fair, very fair. When, when I studied psychology, uh, one of the, the life lessons that I took away from, from psych was that whenever you're given a question like, you know, what caused this thing A or thing B, the answer is always some combination of thing A and thing B. It is never as simple as one thing or another. So fun answer. It's not. And, and kids give you, um, oh, I'm just reading this book at the moment called Cultish. And it's about the language of cults. So fascinating. It's really interesting. I'll, I'll, um, actually, I was a little bit later on this thing than what I wanted to be because I had my nose in this book, which is very, this is it. Go and read that. It's fascinating. But one of the things she talks about is, and you'll have done this in psychology, is how when we've invested a certain amount We don't want to not invest anymore because we go, well, we've already invested all of that. So I'm not going to give up now. And then, you know, you'll keep going just because you've already put in two years into this or $100,000 into this. So you're not going to give up on it now. And that's one of the ways cults keep you involved in them. So one of the other things that can happen is you get a a little bit of a win. And that keeps you going, you know. You're still losing, 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 and then you have a bit of a win, and that keeps you going. Parenting's the same. You want to kill them, and then they'll do something. You've got, oh, they're so cute. How could I think that of them? They're really gorgeous, and it keeps you going for a bit longer, and that's what nature does. Okay. <laughs> oh, it, it's called the sunk cost fallacy, listener. That's it. We did, we did it in it actually did it in philosophy. It's one of the most common logical fallacies that you'll find in arguments, or as I like to call it, the fishing fallacy, because I'm pretty sure that's that's the only reason people enjoy fishing. You sit there for hours 
and nothing happens. And then you get one fish and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll stay for a little bit longer. Gambling works the same way. Po- the pokies work in exactly the same way. The sunk cost fallacy is, is a powerful thing. It's, it's fun that you should use that to describe parenting. <laughs> myself any favors in this conversation am i children i love it i love it and you know disclaimer for the listeners we were all more or less good children <laughs> we were all a little bit too clever for our own good i think we had an unerring instinct for figuring out how to cause the most chaos with the minimum effort and, and we made everyone's life hell when we were bored which was frequently but I think we were all good kids, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> you were. You, you also knew where the boundaries were too because I made them very clear. Mm, you did You did make them very clear. And we pushed them constantly. And, and kids do hmm. need to. You were supposed to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, especially when I think, which it, is why I don't like the atomic family concept because when, when you go to school, as a kid, you're exposed to the outside world in a way that you haven't been at all, you know, or, or kindergarten if, if it's earlier. And um, suddenly you're exposed to people uh, who are very different from the people who raised you. So, for instance, you had boundaries and you were very, very clear what happened when you crossed those boundaries, right? And there were punishments galore. And then you go into the outside world and you meet the kind of floppily moraled people who will tell you not to do something but immediately cave the moment you cross that barrier. And kids can sense weakness. They can sense it like a cat can sense someone who doesn't like cats. They they have an instinct for it. They can smell it on you. And they'll push that boundary and they're like, okay, so if this works, why isn't it working at home? I should go and test this hypothesis. Maybe it's only because I'm older now. So I, <laughs> I think that's why that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm against it. Because if you've got a big com- community who's, who's raising you from a really, really early age, you're going to be exposed to all sorts of different kind of things, especially if all of them have the same kind of retort, which is, you know, if they go too far, it's your mother's not going to be happy. Go see your mother. She's going to tell you off. You're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Which was, you know, when we got older, when you go to school, they're like, I'm going to call your mother. And you're like, please don't call my mother. I'm I'm good, I promise. (laughs) I do remember one time, Kira and I were talking about it the other week. She was in year six and Something had happened, I can't remember exactly what it was, before this particular school day between her and a friend. There'd been text messages flying and I hadn't wanted Kira to have a phone anyway, so I was a bit annoyed that she was texting this girl before school because I used to make you put your phones on the kitchen bench and they stayed there till you left for school and she'd sneaked hers off into her room. I think Kira pushed more boundaries than anybody, right? Uh, I think Jamie pushed a lot of boundaries. Jamie pushed a lot. Keely and I were sneaky about pushing boundaries. Keely, yeah, you and Keely, you kind of sit at the back pulling strings and, mm. and pretending it wasn't you. You get other people to do your dirty work for you. I saw it all. And this particular day, something had happened and there'd been text messages flying about. And the first thing I knew of it was this really angry text message from this other girl's mum about whatever it was Kira had done. And it was something to do with school, like it involved school in some way I can't remember the whole story anyway I was livid absolutely furious and I dragged Kira down to school that morning 
time as I'm walking through the thing, I've got a hold of her by the arm. And one of the teachers, Kira's teacher, looked at me and said, is everything okay? I said, no, nope, I've got to go and see the deputy head. He went, okay. And he stepped out of my way and I carried on going. And the deputy head spent the time, Mr. Butler, calming me down and telling Kira everything was going to be okay when I'd finished telling him what had happened. I was so angry. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Butler. <laughs> and after he'd sent Kira off to a classroom in tears and he got me a cup of tea, he said, Karen, it'll be okay. He said, I wish more parents would do this kind of thing. Maybe not to the extent that you did it, but it'd be really nice to have the support of parents on this. And he kind of calmed me down with a cup of tea and a biscuit because I was mm. cross. <laughs> yes, I think we made you cross rather frequently, actually you know if my if memory serves yeah the worst one was I rarely used your dad to interfere your dad left all of the because we did good cop bad cop and I was the bad cop and your dad was the good cop he was the one that'd be nice but if if I said to you I'm talking to your father because I've had enough of this that was when you knew that you'd really really yeah. crossed the line <laughs> we we're all quite scared of dad for that reason <laughs> <laughs> he got away with a lot like you talk about how much we get away with he got away with a lot just because we were too scared to complain about him like if things got really really bad we complain about the small things you know the stuff that he would do to his because his sense of humor listener is to niggle you as subtly as possible until it's just infuriating to be around him and then pretend that he never did anything at all and that you're being hugely unfair to say such a thing. And then while you're in the middle of this kind of quandary, he'll chuckle away to himself. It's his favorite thing to do, absolute favorite thing to do. So one of his, his hobbies, I think, was to take us out. And, you know, a few hours in, we'd be like, you know, Dad, we're thirsty. We need water for our tiny, you know, frail children bodies. And he'd be like, no, there's water at home. Get water later. <laughs> we'd be like, Dad, please, can we have a lemonade? And he's like, no, you had a lemonade last time. <laughs> As if it was perfectly reasonable, by the way, that we would only need a drink once a day. <laughs> and, you know, when, when an adult speaks to you with that kind of certainty, that firm tone, no, you had a drink yesterday, you'll wait. <laughs> you know what he was doing. He fully intended to buy us a drink eventually. But, uh, but yeah, he, he got away with a lot. <laughs> he did get away with a lot. I, I did used to tell him off because Kira would invariably tell me. <laughs> She'd come over and cry. Uh, Kira complained about everything, though. Good gracious. <laughs> well, the third question was, um, what was your kind of vision for when, when you had us? What was your kind of thought about why we would be alive? Now, did you think about that kind of thing? No. Why would no? I think about that? Well, you're, you're giving life to someone. You, they've got a whole life ahead of them. You know, let's say 80 years, lower if they're a man. and. There's a I think whole it's actually, I need to pull you up on that. Have you looked at the latest statistics? I actually haven't looked at the latest Right, so what they're saying now is, because I'm looking around my family and it's the men who live longer. Always. It's always, you get the occasional woman, but it's the men. And they're saying that the life expectancy for men was unnaturally lower because of world wars 
because boys can be really stupid and they tend to be in accidents and a few <laughs> other and work work related accidents and things which actually caused an artificial decrease in the life expectancy of men which makes complete sense hmm. okay let me see so males life expectancy expected age of death in years at different ages by sex Oh my gosh, what a table. It looks like it's it's about 98 for both men and women now. And it's fairly equal mm. between the genders, which, which might mean that that discrepancy will, will, will only increase in the favor of men, you know, which is, which is fine. I don't know. I, I would have thought that women would live, live longer, honestly. Then again, you waste, biologically speaking, you waste a lot of resources. You know, with the with the menstrual cycle, which is mm. just a terrible design, and childbirth but as well, because it's terrible. Yeah, we're, we're the only mammal that, that. Well, we lol. You're the only mammal that menstruates. I'm fine. I'm great here. I'm, I'm biologically much better than you are. Then again, we've still got a bunch of things that are you know problematic for humans as a whole, like knees and spine, which you know, it's hips, hips. Why would you break a hip? Why would you build a hip? It is so easy to break. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I've got notes. <laughs> I've got notes on whoever built the human body, which is arguable. Listen, let's not start that one. Let's just assume that, you know, if there is an afterlife, I've got notes. So that was my question. When you, when you, you know, ha- had kids and decided to have kids, did you, did you ever stop to think about, you know, they've got a whole life. You know, what, what do I expect for them? What do I want for them? You know, apart from, I assume that the usual kind of growing up and meeting someone and, and getting a job and that kind of stuff. Did you did you have a hope or an expectation for each of us? No. Mm-hmm. Sorry to disappoint you, Ryan. <laughs> it's just I think it was something I hadn't thought about until until recently, and um, it was in the same discussion with a couple of friends about the the Mother's Day not being mothers kind of thing because I think it might not be until you know it doesn't happen do you realize just what expectations you have about the future what kind of shape that you think the future will hold it doesn't need to be a a concrete kind of plan but you know she had thoughts about how things would would turn out for not just for her but for her son and it kind of made me look at it in 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 a different light you know what do you what do parents expect of you know their kids or is that not something that's, that's considered? You just kind of. It wasn't for me because I suppose I, I will do things for the experience of them because I want to experience something. I'm not the kind of person who would necessarily think my way through something. It's an, an instinctive gut feeling. Okay, I want to do this. And then I'll make it work. I'll make it happen and I'll make it work. That's. Because if for me, if I sit back and think about what I want for you all in a detailed sense, and like I, I'm not the kind of person that can plan something in detail. You know, everybody says, Oh, if you're visualizing your future, you've got to you've got to visualize it down to the nth degree. It's got to be really detailed. That's never worked for me because I get too confused. So what I base everything on is feelings. It's emotions. So when with you lot, it's all about happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment and 
growth and all of those things that are important to me, basically my core values, that's what it's about, not about what I want it to look like. It's about how I want it to feel. So I enjoy being with people and I enjoy having good times with people and being around people. And that's that was the experience that I wanted you for to have. And it was one of the reasons why four kids was great because you always had each other. There was always stuff going on. There was always new people to meet because each of the four of you had individual circles of friends. So it was those it was experiences that were important to me, not what do I want my child's future to look like. No, that's that's never it's about experiences. It's a good answer. I can't, yeah, I can't do the whole, oh, my child's going to make a difference in the world. I've got to make the world a better place for my child. I just do that by being, I don't know, doing things that make me feel good and make other people feel good. All you can do is what you can do, Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. It, I think it, it came from, uh, as well, as Generation Z, listener, I'm on the, 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 the top ten, uh, end of, of Gen Z, and, uh, and got to say, the vision that I was given of the world growing up is not a pretty one. You know, the Amazon rainforest dying and global warming and, and a pandemic have all, have all shaped a particular vision of the world that isn't very hopeful mm. for the future. We have a lot of problems, basically. And one of the problems was, in fairness, overpopulation. I don't think that's any longer a problem because the vast trend is for a lot of millennials and Gen Z to not want kids which I think is, is probably the natural response to all of these different problems and how nature kind of balances out those particular kind of issues. But um, my view was always that things are a little bit too problematic to be, bring kids into the world at this point. There's too many problems, and not just for them. Like if I did want kids, you know, I'd, I'd need a house and I'd need to pay for schooling and, and prices are only going up everywhere for everything so I, I would need to make a lot of you know more so sacrifices than I would normally need to make for kids and they would need to make sacrifices in order to to live a life that they wanted to live which is um you know why I was like okay so you see all of those things that you're saying are no different to every generation before when your grandma was pregnant with me it was the Cuban missile crisis so they were looking at nuclear war when your grandma and granddad were born, it was World War II. When your great-grandparents were born, it was World War I. And then going through the Great Depression and all the other things. So it's, it's the same issues, just in a different era. It's no different. Mm. Interesting. What was the major issue in the world when, when you were pregnant with us? Well, oh, there was, so there was famines, um, if you remember. It was, it was hunger because you had live aid in the 80s and then all that Bangladesh got flooded every year and there was thousands of people homeless and starving, you know, starvation and war across Africa. And, and I could be being very blinkered here, but to me it's no different than it's ever been. It's just a different set of things that problems that we could use as a reason not to have children or not to do whatever. It's just the same, same, same. And it's a choice. It's not that I'm criticising your choice. It's a choice. But it's, yeah, no. it's actually no different as far as I'm concerned. But there, there are a lot, of, a lot of people of my generation, I have a lot of friends, who still want kids. That's just my 
one of my many reasons. I, I found I find that interesting. And and also, if to me as well, by not having children, I'm actually not helping because part of my responsibility is to bring my children up in a way that they do what they can to be aware of what's happening and not be part of the problem, to be part of the solution. So that's another way of looking at it too. Not that I did think in that depth, but that is a way of looking at it. No, that, that kind of answers, that's, that's an answer to the question as well, I suppose, and, and which also raises another philosophical question, you know, is it morally bankrupt to raise a child for this, you know, distinct purpose of, of achieving a particular end or should you only raise a child? for the purpose of having a child, and that's it. Let's not get Kantian about this. No, let's not. I don't like him. <laughs> no, none of us like Immanuel Kant. Idiot. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Hate him. <sighs> he's, he's fine, I guess. But I think he's the Freud of philosophy. Don't like yeah, him. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Moral absolutism is not everything it's cracked up to be. Let's not. It's dark. It, he promises answers, but, but what he leaves you with is... He doesn't uh, actually give you any. It's just dust <laughs> and emptiness. It's rubbish. Actually, that's something, like reading about, reading that book, Cultish, and we're going to have to finish up in a minute, but here's a conversation we can have because one of the things she talks about is what Immanuel Kant does, and it's thought-stopping answers. So like in Shambhala, for example, the, the Buddhist thing, they'd say if, if a, an acolyte said, oh, this is troubling me, the answer from the leaders was, well, let's sit with that for a while, shall we? It's a way of stopping all thought, putting a stop to all thought. You don't think any further. You just obviously it's something wrong with you. It's not something wrong with whatever's going on. And Immanuel Kant does a little bit of that. In a different way. He's problematic. He's very, very problematic. I, some things are fine. Like his, his stance on, on lying, for instance, is, is worth reading about because his stance is that you shouldn't lie, not just because it's morally bankrupt, but because lying to someone else makes them more morally bankrupt and just dilutes the entire world, which is fun. I like that. I like that perspective. Mm. I think it's, it's a genuine perspective. But his perspective that... You can only do good things if you aren't being morally rewarded for doing them. No, no. Gets very convoluted after a certain amount of time and becomes ultimately self-defeating. Mm. And then he has this entire system that just gets worse. And you're like, dang it, Emmanuel Kant, you reeled me with your, with your lying stuff and you, you left me hanging at the end. It's terrible. It's just like Nietzsche. It's Nietzsche all over again. Actually, I quite like Nietzsche. Nietzsche's fun. You would expect him to be all doom and gloom, but I find him to be a bit of a party animal. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read Nietzsche. <laughs> I'm going to do a bit of reading. I recommend everyone read some philosophy. <laughs> we had better wrap it up here. Thank you yes. so much. Was there anything else before we go? Probably, but we'll probably leave it there. We can continue this next, next, next session. We invariably will because the conversations <laughs> always continue off in random directions about whatever. Mm. This is fun, though. It I, is I, had fun. Good, I had a good chat. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Thank you. Great question. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you next time. All right.
Chat to you then. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.